1798. January, February, March. Three months in which the French make short work of the Pope's forces. The directory orders um, General Berthier to march on Rome, occupy Rome, depose the Pope, and set up a republic. The United States is outraged by the villainy of France's foreign minister, Talleyrand. The Americans essentially clutched their pearls and said, we're shocked, shocked that there's gambling going on here. They found this an outrage and, a, and, and uh, an offense. And to the south, the king who rules Naples and the queen who rules him are cooking up plans to get even with the French. To try something on their own would be very, very risky and very, very foolhardy unless the French were drawn out of Italy and sent somewhere else. I'm Alexander Stevenson and this is episode 25 of the Napoleonic Quarterly, covering three months in which the world wonders what France will do next. The Napoleonic Quarterly takes the epic conflicts of the 1792 to 1815 period three months at a time. And in this episode, we'll hear from Frank Cogliano on the XYZ affair, Mary Robinson on perplexing papal problems, and Jonathan North on why Naples matters in 1798. But first, as always, it's great to be joined for yet another season by Charles Esdale, Professor Emeritus at the University of Liverpool, and Alexander Mikabaridze, Professor of History at Louisiana State University, Shreveport. Now, it's been a while since we last spoke, so Alex, if I might start with you, what's been keeping you busy through the second half of 2022? Well, greetings, gentlemen, and greetings to everyone listening. Um, uh, it's been a while, uh, Alex. Um and the second half uh, was busy, <laughs> but for good reasons, for less <laughs> good reasons. Uh, I think we all got sick at certain points and uh, struggled to recover. Uh, and of course, our writing commitments uh, have taken a lot of our time. I, I've finished and published several books. Um, I think many of our listeners probably have heard me uh, somewhere talking about the Russian Field Marshal Kutuzov over the past couple of months as, as I've been uh, giving interviews to, pr to promote the book. So, uh, and of course, uh, the fall semester was very interesting teaching. Uh, actually, uh, despite the challenges of COVID and everything, this was one of the uh, best uh, semester for me. Um, I had amazing students, so it was absolutely uh, delightful to, to interact with them. Well, it sounds good. Well done on getting through your own uh, um, various hurdles and obstacles. But I'm not sure many of our listeners will have got out several books uh, in the last few months. That sounds like pretty good going. Uh, now, I know, Charles, you've been through a big change. How's, how's your last six months been? Well, um, in, in September, my partner and I moved from Liverpool uh, to the Isle of Man. And effectively, we emigrated to the Isle of Man because it is, of course, an ind independent state which isn't part of the United Kingdom. 
Um, I still owe allegiance to our gracious sovereign Lord Charles III, but I owe allegiance to him not as King of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, but rather as Lord of Man, because, of course, the Isle of Man is uh, by origin a feudal dependency of the crown. And it's now um, it's now, strictly speaking, a crown dependency. Wow, that sounds brilliant. Lord of Man. uh, That's fantastic. Think Gibraltar, but in a much colder uh, climate. I love the local Lord Man, right? (laughs) I love it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, so yes, well, so we've moved to the Isle of Man. Um, we're currently in temporary accommodation and, and about to embark on house hunting, which means that I will actually be able to get all of my books uh, over from, from the United Kingdom and actually set up shop again properly. Um, and apart from that, um, I've been busy with the copy editing of two books. Um, namely my books on on the uh, on the British Battalion of the International Brigades, which is going to make me very, very unpopular in certain quarters. And and also um, my book on uh, Wargaming Waterloo, which I hope will actually make me popular in certain quarters. <laughs> well, Charles, you might be now a professor emeritus these days, um, but I think the professor in you is, is never going to go away. And so it's excellent news that you're the reunion of a professor with his books is is nearing. Um, you could never be fully whole without without all of your books, so that's excellent. And it sounds really good that you've been um, very busy uh, with, with all that stuff as well. And um, for my part, uh, well, I, I suppose I've had a, a slightly tricky time. Um, and just to, to explain to listeners why there has been a bit of a gap, I spent the summer with migraine headaches, and I even had to go back to my parents to convalesce uh, in uh, in the autumn after having had COVID. Um, but the good news is that uh, I'm much clearer about what's wrong with me. It's a convergence insufficiency in my eyes, which was brought on by COVID. And um, that the, the challenge I now have is that I struggle to read or really do anything close up with my eyes for more than a, a minute or two. And sadly, that does include podcast editing, which is why the frequency of episodes has slowed down a bit. But I have a pretty good plan. Um, uh, help certainly by the fact that I'm dropping down to part time, which means I can spend more time with the podcast, which is great. So I've, I've got a few ideas about uh, how to go forwards. But I think the idea is that you can expect um, uh, a main episode monthly, um, and then there'll be the bonus episodes instead of coming in between each year of the, 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 the podcast covering. Um, you can expect those uh, episodes coming in between. Okay, so here we are, finally at last. I'm delighted to be back. We're up and running um, and getting going with uh, episode 25 of the Napoleonic Quarterly, which will assess the situation as it is at the end of the first quarter of 1798. So that's 31st March 1798. And uh, it'll be uh, Charles and Alex falling to them as usual to, uh, to ask them the question of what they think is the most significant development in this quarter. But before then, um, we have a new, an innovation to present to you all. Uh, and uh, certainly one of the big helps in this uh, for season four has been Josh Proven. Uh, you'll know him from Adventures in History Land. Uh, and certainly it'll come as no surprise to any of you to learn that he's done a brilliant job of pulling together the headline developments which kick off each episode. And 
one of the best moments of the year has been seeing that audio file from Josh dropping into my inbox and uh, enjoying the smile spreading across my face as I listen to his headlines for the first time. I suspect there might be a smile on your face as you listen to them too. Uh, and so without further ado, here's Josh Proven with the headline developments for January, February and March 1798. Now the top stories for this quarter of 1798. In French foreign policy, an effort to exert closer control on overseas territories leads the Council of the 500 to pass the law on the colonies, which will allow territories like Haiti to govern itself under the laws of European France. A move that, while not returning slavery, restricts the liberties of its black citizens in the Caribbean. With France secure, but war ongoing, the Directory presses ahead with plans to send Bonaparte with an invasion force to England. The hero of Rivoli has other plans and continues plotting an invasion of Egypt with Maurice de Talleyrand, which he will propose in February, arguing that it will secure French trade and threaten British links to India. Meanwhile, Republican troops are marching to suppress the rebellious cantons of Switzerland, and Bern will be occupied by the early spring. Popular unrest sees republicanism on the rise across Europe. On 22nd January, a French-backed coup d'etat sees the House of Orange and the Dutch Republic toppled. The state that emerges in its place will be known as the Batavian Republic. In Italy, the attack on the French diplomatic party during the anti-republican riots of late 1797 is used as a pretext for intervention in papal affairs, with General Berthier marching into Rome in early February, securing the city and proclaiming the creation of a Roman Republic. Five days later, Pope Pius VI is taken into custody after refusing to relinquish his temporal authority. With no shortage of political drama for France early in the year, more was to come as President John Adams, faced with the legacy of the J-Treaty that had alienated the French in 1794, makes an effort to mend relations leading to the XYZ affair, which will bring the two fledgling republics to the brink of an all-out war. Moving further east now, unaware of the storm about to hit him from Europe, the Ottoman Sultan Selim III, struggling to reform his empire, appoints Ali Pasha of Janina as governor of Turkish Rumelia, and tasks him with crushing the revolt of Osman Pazvantoglu in the Balkans. Meanwhile, scattered Ottoman forces in Arabia struggle to suppress the rebellion of the Wahhabi extremists led by Saud ibn Abdulaziz in the First Ottoman-Saudi War. Staying with Eastern affairs, but shifting to some British headlines, in February, the new British governor of Bengal, Richard Wellesley, writes to London from the Cape of Good Hope on his way to India, telling of his plans to gain influence with the state of Hyderabad and so isolate the Kingdom of Mysore from potential allies, not least of whom is France itself. Back in the Caribbean, the War of Liberation in Haiti comes to a close in March, as the British sign an armistice that will allow for the peaceful departure of their forces from a campaign dogged by a well-led and motivated enemy and the ravages of tropical disease. Things are not positive for the British in Europe either, as by the 30th of March, martial law has been declared in Ireland following the arrest of the leadership of the Society of United Irishmen, sparking the Irish Rebellion of 1798. 
These have been the Napoleonic Quarterly headlines for the first quarter of the year 1798. Back to you now, Alex. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, Josh has certainly cast his net wide. Uh, what strikes me is that there's not much fighting, not too much actual combat in this three months, but there's plenty of movement here and there. We've got a strong sense of things bubbling up, uh, which suits us very well, of course, as we kick off this season covering 1798 and 1799. And so my proposal to both of you, Charles and Alex, is that we save the big strategic discussion for our end of episode analysis. And instead, now we just restrain ourselves to the question which I'd uh, like to put to you both at the start of each episode, which is namely, of all of the many things that have happened in the first three months of 1798, which do you pick out as being the most significant for this big, long story we're telling? Charles, it's an odd-numbered episode, so you get to go first. Oh, I've forgotten we did that. Okay, I was I was going to jump in regardless, but um, <laughs> the, the, the development, I think, which has most long-term significance out of the ones that we've got in our headlines um, is the French occupation of Rome. Um, and and the, the the clash which develops um, with the Pope uh, and who is of course um, uh, arrested and 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 placed in captivity and you get the fa- the formation of the Roman Republic. Um, the struggle between the French Revolution and and later Napoleon and the Pope is one of the major themes in the Napoleonic Wars. Um, one of the, the the major themes, which often gets little in the way of publicity, but uh, there was a constant struggle between. I, I don't want to say the French Revolution and the Church because I do not see Napoleon as being as really being the French Revolution. He's, he's something which comes from it, but which is separate from it. But certainly, there's constant tension between the French and the papacy. Um, and uh, this is really where, if you like, the ball is opened um, in the formation of the Roman Republic. The papal states, of course, were the uh, temporal holdings of the papacy. Um, basically, the, the Pope had been, if you like, awarded them um, as a means of ensuring that he would be able to remain neutral. Um, in struggles between France and Austria in particular, and so forth. Um, It's a kind of, it's almost like it's sort of a Washington DC plumped in the middle of Italy. Um, Of course, Washington DC is Washington DC because no one of the states um, was going to be allowed to control the national capital. So it's given a district of its own. Equally, the, the Pope remains a temporal ruler because the theory was that he should be neutral and being neutral in the age of the French Revolution and Napoleon is going to be a constant trial. And that's quite enough for me. Sorry. No, that's perfect, Charles. That's dead on two minutes. You're an absolute pro at this. (laughs) Dead on two minutes. Perfect. So, um, Alex, let's see whether, well, Charles has got one of our three segments, which is usually a good sign, but let's see whether you agree with him uh, as to whether you think something else might be coming up that's significant? No, I, th- I think Rome would have been my first choice, but um, let me, uh, uh, I think, emphasize another um, important um, development of, uh, uh, of this time, and that is uh, the new British Governor General, 
heading to India. And of course, we're talking about Richard Wellesley, um, who, in my mind, um, whose appointment uh, it marks a, a decisive moment in the rise of the British dominion in India. Um, of course, British presence in India uh, has a long history before Wellesley, before 1798. But Wellesley's arrival in India um, will mark a, a, a crucial change in terms of how the British um, British East India Company's power is being employed. And especially his treatment of Indian states will, will um, highlight change um, towards the what we now call subsidiary system, which previously was used more as a defensive instrument to protect the company's interests, but now will be used as an offensive uh, tool with which to uh, with which the company will effectively subjugate independent and, in, and and even friendly states to the company's control. And so we'll see over the next years, uh, over the next episodes, right, dozens of episodes, uh, as the new political reality emerging in India because of Wellesley's um, uh, actions and aspirations. Okay, so we've got Wellesley on his way then uh, uh, in this quarter, and he'll be arriving in April in the next quarter, which is, of course, when we'll have a segment to discuss this in a bit more detail with Josh Proven. Uh, So that's uh, all coming up. Well, for our first interview segment, we're going to kick off with a bit of transatlantic tension. Frank Cogliano is Professor of American History at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, He's written an awful lot about the American Revolution, about Thomas Jefferson in particular, and he's been talking me through the background to the almighty diplomatic ruckus that's uh, kicked off in this quarter. Uh, If we look at Franco-American relations in the middle of the 1790s, they're at a very interesting crossroads. Uh, Just by way of background, of course, France and the then uh, rebellious United States had signed a treaty of of alliance um, in 1778 uh, during the American War of Independence, and that was still in force after Obviously, American independence was won, but also after the French Revolution commenced. And so in the mid-1790s, that uh, Treaty of Alliance was still in place, although it was a subject of considerable debate within the United States. And just to to give a little bit of background, um, unsurprisingly, post-independence, British-American relations were in a fairly parlous state. Uh, There was a danger of war between Britain and the United States in the early 1790s, and I don't need to go into the details of that right now, uh, unless you'd like me to. Uh, But those differences were settled with a treaty called the Jay Treaty. Uh, It's at least called the Jay Treaty in the United States, which was concluded in 1794 and ratified by uh, the Senate in 1795. And the Jay Treaty essentially restored economic relations between uh, Britain and the United States. It effectively admitted the United States into the British Empire in economic terms. Uh, it's a little bit like the post-Brexit deal to some extent. And so so what we see is the United States and Britain reach a sort of rapprochement under the Jay Treaty in 1794 and 1795. France, which of course is at war with Britain, 
took against this and viewed this as a as a uh, uh, as a betrayal of the uh, still existing Franco-American alliance of 1778, and France began to agitate and say, you know, basically accuse the United States of um, acting poorly and and um, choosing Britain over its erstwhile ally France and the 1796 presidential election in the United States which pitted John Adams for the Federalists against Thomas Jefferson for the Republicans to some extent was seen certainly in France and also in the United States as a referendum on Franco-American relations and the view was and British-American relations. Well we know uh, from the musical Alexander Hamilton who won that um, election. Oh, and and also from history books as well, <laughs> who, who won that election. Um, but uh, what impact did um, the John Adams victory have on transatlantic policy? Yes, um, uh, thank you for that, Alex. It's 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 an interesting turning point because the French viewed that uh, election as a referendum on Franco-American relations, and although the election was close, Adams and the Federalist Party prevailed which was seen as basically a continuation of the previous Federalist policy of George Washington, which was oriented oriented towards Britain. And the French interpreted this as a rejection of France and really uh, that the American people had endorsed the previous Jay Treaty, which I mentioned a moment ago. And as a consequence of that, uh, the United States found itself in a very similar position in 17, early 1797 to the one it had in late 1793-1794 when war with Britain was threatening. This time war with France was threatening. And France began seizing American ships in what came to be called the Quasi-War, which I believe we're going to be discussing in a subsequent episode. Um, but but France began seizing U.S. ships, and uh, especially in the Caribbean, and it seemed that a full-blown war between France and and the United States was a danger. And so President Adams, in the spring of 1797, uh, went to Congress and got authorization to uh, for military funding to build up the, United, the very small United States Navy, but also authorization to send a delegation, a peace delegation, to France to negotiate with the Directory in the hopes that war could be averted. And this is exactly what George Washington had done back in 1794 when he dispatched John Jay to London to negotiate the treaty that came to be known as the Jay Treaty. So the hope was that these outstanding differences might be settled and that uh, a peace treaty might be might be uh, agreed between the United States, and, or not a peace treaty because they weren't yet formally at war, but a treaty kind of ironing out their differences to, to avoid war. And so that was the hope in the spring and summer of 1797. Right. Okay. Understood. So this is very much the sort of the successor to the Jay Treaty. Yeah. Now it's, it's the United States hoping they can patch up their differences with France and and essentially trade very happily with with both sides and just keep themselves out of it. So okay, it's time then to consider what did happen in the autumn, the fall of 1797. I uh, did make allusions to it in the last episode of the Napoleonic Quarterly, but let's get the sort of the, the actual breakdown of what happened. You have these three American diplomats heading over there, and of course, they're going to be coming up against France's relatively new in office foreign minister, everyone's favourite, Talleyrand. 
<laughs> yes, they do. So, so the three the three American diplomats. Let me just mention them because two of them might be known to, to, to some listeners. So they were Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, who probably isn't very well known to most of your listeners, even though they're interested in this period. He's not that well remembered. The other two, however, were Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, best known because he, it is for him that the gerrymander is named. Awesome. Um, and so Elbridge, Gary or Jerry, he's called both, is the inspiration for the, for the gerrymander. There's a famous cartoon from this period, uh, slightly later. I, I don't know this yet, but uh, he, he, he's associated with the origin of the term gerrymander. And the other is John Marshall. John Marshall was a Virginia Federalist uh, who had served in the Continental Army with George Washington. He's a very eminent Virginian. Um, I think there are big things in his future. Let me just leave it at that. <laughs> so these are the three American diplomats who are, who are sent to France. Pinckney was already there, and and he had he was uh, he hadn't had very much luck negotiating with Talleyrand and and the administration in Paris. They arrive in the autumn of 1797, and they want to undertake negotiations, and they're approached by three French envoys who in their sub who the Americans dub Marshall dubs in his subsequent dispatch back to the United States, which will cause some uh, controversy in subsequent months as X, Y, and Z or X, Y, and Z if we in the, in the UK, but I think they, they called them Z. So we'll call him Z. And these French intermediaries uh, asked for several things as a precondition as preconditions for negotiations. Basically, if you want to see Talleyrand, this is what you have to provide us. And the three things were the United States needed to apologize to France, basically, for any uh, upset caused by its pro-British, seemingly pro-British policies. The United States should provide France with loans. And again, under the Treaty of 1778, the French were on pretty good ground in asking for these. They, you know, the, the, the United States was still formally allied with France at this point, but loans to help it in its ongoing war with Britain. It should also uh, agree to pay the claims of American merchants whose ships had been seized by the French. So basically, the American government, the U.S. government, should pay for the spoilation of those ships um, by the French as a kind of goodwill gesture. But most importantly, and most outrageously, uh, as the Americans were concerned, uh, they were asked for a $250,000 bribe, or as they say, inducement, um, to pay to Talleyrand in order to gain access to him. Yes, it was all sounding pretty reasonable until that, that last one, that last little point came through, the, the small matter of that. Well, OK, so let's let's look then, Frank, at uh, how things fell out. You know, the, it, it, things moved pretty quickly from there in diplomatic terms, at least. They did. And so what happened was the Americans essentially clutched their pearls and said, we're shocked, shocked that there's gambling going on here. So they claimed as as. Uh, uh, Diplomats representing a virtuous republic that they couldn't possibly pay this bribe, not least because they didn't have the money to do so. Uh, and the United States didn't have a lot of money at this point, but they found this an outrage and, a, and, and uh, an offense. And they effectively wrote home to that effect 
Oh, no, sorry, that's a terrible sentence. You can't effectively write to an effect. <laughs> they, they wrote home to that. Marshall wrote a long dispatch to, to President Adams in late 1797, which Adams will receive in, in March of 1798, which outlines this. And there was a big um, stromash, to use the Scots word, about whether to release the this dispatch and to publish it in the press. And eventually it was published in the press in March of 1798. And this caused an outrage in the United States. Well, there we are. And, that, and that's where we, we end up um, at the end of this quarter. It's that, that's why we're doing this in this quarter, because there's this burst of outrage that comes through. So their affected outrage did lead to great effect. It was, it was delivered with great effect. Um, uh, at the end of uh, by the end of March. Um, so, so where are things likely to be heading then, um, as we assess the situation at the end of March 1798? Um, after the dip- diplomacy has failed, how might things be shaping up in the coming weeks? Well, this is where the contrast with the. Jay Treaty negotiations is quite instructive because the Jay Treaty led to peace between or, or, or a harmony, a kind of relatively harmonious relationship between Britain and the United States. What we see with the failure of the of the XYZ negotiations in in the spring of 1798 is the United States and France are both assuming that war between them is inevitable, and so the United States will begin to take measures uh, to prepare for war, and there'll be a series. I suspect. There are a series of quite controversial pieces of legislation coming uh, before Congress in the summer of 1798 that will have long-standing consequences as a result of the XYZ affair. I don't know, of course, yet. But in the spring of 1798, France and the United States have assumed that the the negotiations having failed, because effectively they're talking past each other, uh, war is inevitable. And so both sides are preparing for war. And in some ca- in the case of France, really, continuing the ongoing war at sea that had begun back after the 1796 election in early 1797. So, thanks very much to Frank Cogliano um, for that excellent overview of the situation. And uh, Charles, I suppose the real question which we're dealing with now is whether or not the the United States is going to lean towards France and Britain. Um, I suppose the natural expectation is that it would be towards France, given their previous history. I I think what's worth highlighting is the fact that although... France and the United States might seem natural allies. After all, um, they're both republics. Um, France is fighting Britain. The United States was fighting Britain. France helped the United States and so on and so forth. Relations between them um, in the course of the revolution and the Napoleonic period aren't necessarily going to be straightforward in the slightest. There, there is room for a great deal of tension, I think, um, and and that tension is going to work out, work its 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 way through um, in the months and years to come. But but yeah, I mean, not necessarily straightforward, as I say. Okay, so a quick question for Alex off the back of that, um, which is a personal one in some senses, I guess. And that what I what I want to ask is. Okay, we, on the European side of things, you've got the European map on which this 
board game is being played. And, and sometimes when we're sort of looking at that frame, that European frame, we forget about the whole Atlantic world and everything that's going on there. So uh, the question is, in the minds of those in, the, in courts, um, you know, uh, across Europe, did the Atlantic world matter in the same way that transatlantic ties matter today? Did, did, did they matter then like they do today? Yes, uh, especially if we um, if we look uh, from the French perspective, uh, of course, the uh, United States and, and France, we've seen them collaborating uh, during the American Revolution, uh, Revolutionary War. But um, let's not forget that um, during this period, um, the U.S. and France are in this so-called, you know, it will be engaged in the so-called quasi-war, which in many respects, has been already underway as a as a kind of um, uh, you know, o ongoing tensions between the two countries. Um, uh, uh, but the 1798, in particular, will be an important moment um, in, in time because um, these tensions will escalate to uh, dramatically. In fact, there is a, a fascinating memorandum that uh, one of the French diplomats uh, prepares for Talleyrand in, in, at this time, in which um, uh, the diplomat um, Leton is uh, actually uh, explaining in detail the military kind of political uh, preparations of the United States for war with France. So here we see kind of a, a, a escalation of relations between the former allies. And of course, for France, that that would have presented um, an additional challenge uh, at a time when they were already facing challenges uh, um, across Europe and Mediterranean. So no, the uh, United States might be on the periphery, but it's a periphery that is quite important to the European empires, be it uh, France, Spain, not to mention Britain itself. What I might point out is the, the potential of the United States um, in terms of economic contacts, um, the United States has the capacity to export grain. It's got the capacity to, to, to export naval supplies. Um, of course, the, the, the glorious 1st of June was all about trying to get a convoy of, of ships carrying uh, grain from the United States to France. Um, and, and, then, and then later on, um, just to, to anticipate you know, something which is going to come up in 10 years' time, literally, um, in the Peninsula War. Um, Wellington's army, um, based in, in, in Lisbon and so forth, uh, was very largely fed um, from the United States. Also, also incidentally, from Morocco, as it happens. But, but that is to anticipate the future. So, so the point is that the United States... Um, is certainly potentially an economic factor, if not a military one. 1798, uh, kind of this beginning of 1798, will be the uh, the, the moment when, um, for the United States, politically, uh, there is, of course, very polarized environment, um, uh, two parties that are vying for control of the uh, government and the, in the society, at least the upper echelons of society are certainly uh, very uh, kind of divided uh, among these political uh, uh, groups. And uh, if we look at that um, kind of um, uh, memorandum that I uh, alluded to by Letom, it, um, it is interesting to me that 
um, the Letrompe saw this polarization as an as a opportunity for the French, um, and especially um, he would later on kind of uh, uh, advise Talleyrand that. Uh, and there is a wonderful quote uh, in which Letrompe says that France is capable of overthrowing United States, uh, Mr. Adams, of course, um, and his party if France quote wanted to put in the necessary time. Later, you know, later on, we'll talk about kind of French um, willingness to engage in, in neighboring countries, of course, relations in places like Dutch Republic and uh, Switzerland and, and Italian Peninsula. We uh, already talked about the problems, kind of alluded to problems in Rome. But here they are looking way beyond the uh, confines of Europe to to uh, to the other side of the um, uh, Atlantic Ocean and and showing willingness right or interest in in, in interfering in the relations of other countries as, um, as well. Excellent. Well, that's really good to have that context uh, for what's going on there. Uh, okay, let's return then to European shores and the situation in Italy. Charles had singled this one out as his big pick of the events taking place in this three months. So to talk us through goings on in Rome, here's Mary Robinson once again, Associate Professor of History at the University of Lords in Ohio. <laughs> Tensions are simmering because there is tension in Rome between between the French that are living in Rome and the Romans. And then even within the Romans themselves, there's some division because there are Romans who sort of Roman Jacobins who are sympathetic to the French and want to see more of a French revolutionary movement happening in Rome. And then there's the majority of the Romans who don't like the papal government. It's inefficient. It's backward. It's inept. But they don't want a, they don't want a French Revolution in Rome. So there is this there is tension. The Jacobins in Rome, they had been growing in support since about 1792 and into 1793. And there's this famous incident that happens in 1793 where this um, French um, he's a representative from the French government, but he actually has no official assignment in Rome because Rome and France have cut off diplomatic relations. But he shows up in Rome and he says, I'm a diplomat. And he starts going to the Pope and making all these demands on the Pope. And his name is Hugo de Basville. And the Pope, of course, says, no, we, we have no diplomatic relations. You can't make demands on the papacy. And so Hugo de Basville, one day, he, he he's really convinced, like a lot of these other revolutionaries in France, that if if he just that if he just lights the spark, all of these Roman Jacobins and Roman revolutionaries are going to take to the streets. So he decides to do that in January 1793. He takes he goes out in the street and starts riding up and down the Via del, Co del Corso, um, waving the French flag and wearing his tricolor uh, uh, cockade, and he's got his wife and his child with him. And a bunch of the Romans decide they don't like this, and they chase him into a courtyard and stab him. And he then becomes a martyr for the revolutionary cause in France. Fast forward then to 1797, to December of 1797, late December, right after Christmas. You have a new, you do now have a 
sort of unofficial ambassador to France, uh, from France to, to Rome, and that's Joseph Bonaparte. And he's staying uh, in the area around the Via della Corso in the sort of what would be the French embassy. And he's, and he's bringing a lot of his family and friends to stay with him and, and dine with him. And so um, Napoleon's um, stepson is there. Eugène de Beauharnais is there. And Joseph's, um, Joseph also is entertaining this Frenchman named Je um, General Dufault. Now, this probably isn't a household name to Napoleonic um, enthusiasts or scholars, but the importance of Dufault for Joseph is that Dufault is actually engaged to Joseph's wife's sister, Clary. Ah, who thickens. Who in previous years had been a um, paramour of Napoleon himself. So she, so Desiree Clary, um, Joseph's sister-in-law, is engaged to this General Defoe. Defoe is adamantly a Republican and wants to see this kind of Republican revolution in Rome, just like in France. Well, at the end of December um, in 1790-97, a bunch of um, Roman Jacobins, they hold this demonstration against the papal government in Rome, and they march to the Via del Corso to, to the French embassy, and they, and they rush into the French embassy, and they are being chased there by these um, papal dragoons. And the dragoons actually enter the grounds of the, papal or of the French embassy. Well, that's clearly um, unacceptable, isn't it? That's breaking the rules on a really fundamental level. Uh, so it's a massive no-no. I can't imagine this is going to end well. It's not. So... So Dufault, he is angered at the fact that the papal troops are in the French embassy. And so he takes up arms and he rushes out of the embassy with some of his other um, uh, fellow um, our, um, soldiers, rushes out of the embassy. And he, with these Roman Jacobins, they, they turn on the papal dragoons and they chase the dragoons out of the embassy. And as they're running down the streets of Rome, one of the dragoons fires at Dufault and kills him. So, yeah, one French uh, Jacobin killed looks like um, misfortune, two looks like carelessness or something worse. And the French are going to come down very hard on this, aren't they? Yes. I mean, in a sense, this is what the directory has been waiting for. This is their, the directory's excuse then to send a French army to march on Rome. So... The directory orders um, General Berthier to march on Rome, occupy Rome, depose the Pope, and set up a republic. And how does that go? Does the plan go smoothly? Is, is it fairly straightforward? Um, not ex well, not, not as straightforward as the directory would have hoped. Yeah, because we've seen so it's been so easy for the French to, you know, impose their military superiority that led to the armistice of Bologna, that led to the peace of Tolentino. And you sort of wonder if the same thing might happen again now. But but you're saying not. Well, militarily, I guess, yes, it does. But once again, the directory, they've they overassume 
how how revolutionary the Romans themselves are. The Pope's representatives offer the military surrender of the city of Rome. Berthier accepts the surrender and actually promises that he will respect the religion and the Pope's spiritual power. Berthier hopes that this will buy time because he hopes that once it's published that the, that the Pope has surrendered the city of Rome, that this will lead to the Romans rising up in revolution and declaring themselves a republic. That doesn't happen. So Berthier on the 15th of February then decides that he's going to let his troops enter Rome. And so they do enter Rome. Um, they declare the Pope deposed and they set up a consular um, republic style government with, with consuls, kind of similar to what Napoleon's going to set up um, in France later. And did the Pope just accept this? Did he come quietly? And of course, if you're getting rid of the Pope, that's one thing, but you can't just get rid of the Pope. <laughs> so, so the Pope... The Pope kind of accepts the surrender of the military and political side of Rome. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't condone it, but he does kind of accept it. What he won't accept is, is of course, any sort of limit to his spiritual power. And actually, that goes back to the Treaty of Tolentino, in that at the Treaty of Tolentino, Napoleon had tried to strip the Pope of, or, or tried to impose some um, some uh, restrictions on the Pope's spiritual power. At the Treaty of Tolentino, Napoleon insisted that France have what's called the jus exclusive, which is um, sometimes called the exclusive, which is the right of a of a for of a temporal government to declare a papal election invalid lots of countries including france have claimed this power over the years though the popes never acknowledge have never acknowledged it at tolentino the pope's representative said said to napoleon look that's an infringement on the pope's spiritual power Tolentino just deals with the Pope as a temporal lord. You're going to have, we will not agree to that. And so Napoleon, Napoleon um, takes that off the table. But now here in February of 1798, Berthier doesn't have the same kind of, um, same kind of reluctance to go after the Pope's spiritual power, or at least those in his delegation do not. And so, uh, when they when the French army marches into Rome, they arre they arrest and imprison not just the Pope, but all of the cardinals who were around the Pope, who were helping the who who were advising the Pope. And in fact, they tell the Pope he has to leave Rome in three days, and so he's he has to find a place to go. Interestingly, one of the French delegation tells the Pope that he has to hand over um, his two rings. The Pope has, has the rings of his office, right? He, he, the, the famous line, you go and kiss the ring. Yes. He has to hand over the rings, uh, the papal rings. The Pope agrees to hand over the one, you know, bejeweled one, but for the other one, the, the fisherman's ring, that is, the, that is the one that establishes the apostolic succession of the papacy. And so, he's, so he refuses to hand that over because he said, I can only hand this over to the next elected pope. And so 
the French let him have that one because they assume there's not going to be another elected pope. We've imprisoned the pope. We've stripped him of his temporal power. Um, there will be no other pope. In fact, they start calling him Pius VI, the last. And right. so they assume there. And, and I should mention also at this point, he's in his 80s and not in good health. So they assume this is going to be the last of the popes. And so for Catholics at this time, it must have been a very bleak period. Um, and, uh, you know, or, or, or did, was, were there grounds for them to hold out hope? I think it depended on where you were. In, do, do you mean in Europe as, as a whole or just in Rome? Well, I, I suppose that's part of the question, really. You know, did what? How significant was this event in terms of the the continent as a whole, um, or, or or was it just? Is this just a case of high politics? I think it's more than that, isn't it? It, it really is for the average for the average Catholic, you know, in the pew, the average person, like they're still going to mass and still engaging in their devotions as they normally would. But in turn, it's what's gonna, what's going to be the difficult thing is what happens when Pius VI dies. He's not in good health. He's not going to live very long. What's going to happen when he dies? Thank you to Mary Robinson. Now, Charles, let's see what you make of this situation in Rome, where we have a big change all of a sudden. Those French Jacobins, having got themselves rather worked up, um, they've now got their, what, what they wanted. They've achieved this great big change, and Rome is now a republic. Yes, indeed. Rome is a republic, complete with a, a tricolor all of its own, a, a red, white, and black tricolor. Um, and the, the Pope is, 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 is no longer its ruler, um, very obviously. What is the, the significance of this? Well, what we see basically is, is yet one more example of, of the, um, the weakness of the, the, the policy of the Samite Republic. Um, the Batavian Republic... Um, which was the first of the satellite republics, actually functions rather well because there is, um, if you like, in place a pre-existing political nation. The Dutch were well used to, to functioning um, in a constitutional state. Um, and essentially politics carry on, carry on much as ever, um, the same sort of factions as before. In, in in the papal states, by contrast, you're 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 introducing introducing a system of government which has no precedent. It 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 is completely foreign. You're also doing it in a situation in which the populace are absolutely furious. Um, Rome is the most Catholic of cities, the most papist of cities, um, and and logically so because the the, the papacy. Um, and its existence in Rome lies at the heart of Rome's economic life. So many people depended on it. Um, you also have a very, very vibrant Catholic culture, um, which is now under threat. Um, you have 
a certain number of members of the elite who are willing to rally to the republic and and try and make it work um but they are few in number and their their ranks are divided one from another by all sorts of internal disputes the net result is that the roman republic is really a very very flimsy um construct and um achieves very few of its aims in terms of if you like implanting a new order um in the midst of the old thank you charles for setting up the situation in rome where perhaps things aren't quite as straightforward as those jacobins might have hoped now um Let's uh, think about the relationship between the, ch- the Catholic Church and the Revolution. It's a long-running story that we're following throughout the, this, uh, this 24-year period. Um, so, Alex, where has that relationship got to in general terms by 1798? I think um, this moment in time, in, in, you know, the French invasion of uh, uh, Rome and the... Um, detention uh, of, of Pius VI, who will be transported from Vatican to Siena right in February, and then from Siena, uh, um, he will be forwarded to, to Valence. Um, um, this, I think this moment is, is, uh, is quite important because it underscores revolutions, uh, kind of turbulent, tempestuous relationship with Catholicism, with religion. And that is an issue that, uh, that will trouble Europe um, and, and beyond, really, uh, throughout the 19th century, we can even kind of get it to, to the modernity. Because here we see an issue where revolutionaries uh, increasingly were distrustful of the Catholic Church or the organized kind of religion as such, um, and in many respects persecuted the Church to, uh, to an extent unseen uh, since the days of Reformation, right? Um, in, in, in countries, um, in parts of Europe, like France or, or Italian states, we see society that will be uh, riven with divisions over the issue of, 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 religion, of, of the relationship between ch- church and state, right? The, the deep division between the pious Catholic and the fervent Republicans um, that um, will, will mark uh, an important moment uh, in, in time. Of course, this relationship is is full of uh, violence and persecution, um, um, and uh, that is the theme that will stay with us uh, for many episodes to come. Well, indeed, and that, I suppose, is one of the great themes of this long story that we're telling. Now, Mary had mentioned the utter failure of the Neapolitans to show up and help the Papal States. And so given that our perspective is shifting to the south and the east in 1798, it certainly makes sense to take a closer look at this. Um, this lightweight power, but certainly a strategically important power, and um, yeah, looking at it a little closer. So helping me along here is Jonathan North, historian, researcher, author on the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. His books include Nelson at Naples, Revolution and Retribution in 1799. Yikes, trouble to come then, all of which we'll be covering later in this season. (laughs) 
So northern Italy seems like it's been settled. Of course, there's the question of Rome. Further south, you have this big landmass um, that's sitting there dominating uh, southern Italy completely, um, which is in the hands of uh, a Bourbon royal family. Um, it's called Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, and, and the king um, who sits on the throne at Naples also controls uh, the island of Sicily, um, but for various uh, bizarre, archaic reasons, uh, the, uh, Sicily uh, south of the, the, the Straits and Sicily north of the Straits. Um, and it used to be a Spanish possession, and in fact the king of Naples um, very closely, intimately tied to the royal family in Spain, which um, at that time, again, rather bizarrely, is uh, is, is in alliance with France. Um, but Naples isn't. And one of the major reasons why Naples isn't in alliance with France is because of the Queen of Naples, who happens to be Marie Antoinette's sister. So the Queen of Naples is Maria Carolina, and she's really quite a forceful uh, person. She's the daughter of uh, the Empress Maria Theresa. So she's of uh, great pedigree. Um, she's an incredible uh, domineering uh, person. She completely controls her husband, whose interests seem to uh, almost entirely consist of hunting um, and eating and sex. Um, so, uh, she handles the politics, and of course her politics are extremely anti-French, anti-French revolution, um, anti-principles of the revolution, and she nurses uh, great loathing for, for anybody who counts themselves as Republican. Naples itself doesn't have a strong revolutionary uh, set of uh, supporters. Um, the, the police state have done a reasonable job in suppressing um, any revolutionary tendencies. Um, the church too have helped out. There's a rather bizarre figure called John Acton, who's the Prime Minister of Naples, who's descended from um, Jacobite uh, family, Catholic family. Yes, it's rather puzzling to see the name John Acton pop up and think, that sounds tremendously not Italian. It's true, but they're sometimes called Giovanni Acton and sometimes John Acton. So Giovanni makes him sound a little bit more uh, Italian. But he's, I think, second generation uh, Jacobite. And he's, of course, working very closely with uh, Maria, Car Maria Carolina, the uh, Queen, in, um, in a very um, conservative and very southern Italian uh, set up uh, where they suppress anything that resembles um, republicanism. So they're dampening down the fires of potential revolution, not that there seems to be too much threat there. And there's clearly a grudge match going on with the French. But um, how, how powerful is, is the kingdom of the two Sicilies in terms of their military force? So it, um, it's not particularly powerful. It commands a very strategic position. So if you start thinking about the wider context, um, Napoleon having been given these Greek islands, French having been given these Greek islands, are starting to think a little bit about uh, Egypt and dominating the Mediterranean, 
and Malta and um, basically turning the Mediterranean into a bit more, into a French-dominated uh, lake. Like I say, they've got an alliance with the Spanish, so the Western Mediterranean is really quite sewn up. And there you have this long leg of Italy sticking deep into the Mediterranean and Naples, the coast, west coast and east coast and Sicily too, are very central to that. Um, for obvious uh, geographic reasons. Not much of a navy, um, not much investment, generally a quite uh, poor country, a lot of potential, but it's sort of stumbling around like it's 1690 rather than 1790. So a bit of a backwater. There's a bit some some, um, reforms, but um, it's never really led anywhere. And certainly in terms of the military, uh, it comes as no surprise uh, that it's been a um, hotbed of corruption and inefficiency for a long time. This starts to change with uh, the wars against France a little bit, um, but the Neapolitans themselves are not particularly interested in military affairs, and they've um, subcontracted most of their um, military to uh, Swiss, um, German, um, and um, Walloon uh, officers, that's Belgian uh, officers, who uh, obviously um, are, are sort of uh, international uh, mercenaries. So they've got a couple of regiments of Swiss, they've got a couple of regiments of uh, Belgians and a couple of regiments of Germans, and uh, they recruit in the, in the, on the, uh, in the Greek um, and Macedonian territories in the Balkans. So they might not have, they have some military capacity there and some capability, but it's sort of limited. But given the strength of feeling, which you're suggesting seems to be the case in the mind of the Queen, uh, it sounds like they'd be perfectly happy to try and cause trouble in any way they can. Absolutely. So um, traditionally, they've got these strong ties with the Spanish. And of course, there's the connection with the Austrian royal family, uh, with Maria Carolina being daughter of... uh, uh, Maria Theresa, Empress Maria Theresa. So um, Naples um, could field an army, and um, there's talk in the early 17, early 1798 of it being about 70,000, 80,000 troops. But they're only really best placed to work with the Austrians. So they're pretty dependent on the Austrians moving in conjunction with the Neapolitans. To try something on their own would be very, very risky and very, very foolhardy unless the French were drawn out of Italy and sent somewhere else, in which case the field would be relatively open. So in early 1798, the situation in Rome obviously changes. um, And the French directory are still involved in in, um, in central Italy. Um, but you'll see that when Napoleon starts to think and consider about uh, how to uh, wage economic war on the British and um, starts thinking about the eastern Mediterranean, and I think those Greek islands uh, were a little bit tempting for him, uh, but they start also thinking about Egypt, um, that the French may well sort of Uh, consider Italy as a secondary theatre. And at that point, Naples becomes something of a threat to French uh, power um, in Italy. But um, for now, uh, sort of early 1798, 
um, not many people are taking them seriously apart from themselves. Um, they may do something in conjunction with the British, because the British are uh, thinking uh, about sending in a fleet into the Mediterranean to um, uh, to prevent this takeover and, and, and sort of transformation of the Mediterranean into a French lake. Yeah, you, you paint a really good picture of the, the overall spotlight slowly shifting from, you know, with Campo Formio, we've sorted out northern Italy, as you were describing, and now it's looking to the Mediterranean. And yes, that brings in the, the British and the the Austrians, the, the Ottomans as well, of, of course, need to be considered here, as, not to mention the Russians. So uh, uh, an, an awful lot going on. Um, but but the, how... Um, how were relations with Britain at this stage? I suppose the implication is that that they were willing to, you know, uh, project their presence into the Mediterranean. But I suppose it must have been a massive setback for Naples when um, when the Royal Navy had had to withdraw uh, in, uh, you know, not not that long ago. Definitely, um, Naples was a drawing had been drawing closer to Britain for some time, largely because. Uh, the British ambassador in Naples, Sir William Hamilton, uh, who's a very, very interesting character, um, very, very cultured, but really quite ruthless as well. Um, and he was very, very close to the, the king and made it his business to be close to the queen. Getting close to the king wasn't particularly difficult. They had an interest in hunting and um King Ferdinand of Naples was the kind of person that could shoot 300 deer in a day, um, and Sir William Hamilton didn't find that particularly demanding. Getting close to the Queen, a little bit more complicated, like I say, because she's so close to the Austrians. But uh, Sir William Hamilton does his country a great service by really pulling Naples into a into an unofficial alliance uh, where um, British uh, ships can can use uh, Neapolitan ports and um, no one will, will tell the French, uh, or at least uh, it, it seems like that. So um, he's done a really good job. And there is this, uh, this, it's this alliance emerging between the, the British and Neapolitans. And of course, Sicily is, uh, as I said, is strategically incredibly important. And one of the strange things is that the King of Naples also claims the islands of Malta as being um, Neapolitan possessions to uh, even though the Knights of Malta effectively govern on those islands. Um, it's one of those quirks of history that uh, the Neapolitans claim Malta. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a strategic place for Britain, uh, definitely. And I think the French move to uh, create a French lake in the Mediterranean affects British interests. Um, to such a degree that uh, obviously an alliance with an anti-French uh, kingdom uh, is, a, is a natural natural choice. Jonathan North there setting out the situation in Naples, uh, which is an odd fish of a kingdom, the kingdom of two Sicilies. Uh, it's one, I mean, I, I visited Naples and, you know, went around the various palazzos, the Capo di Monte, etc., admiring all these excellent 
pictures and architecture, etc. But couldn't help but think there's a big gap between the grandiosity on display there and the realities for um, you know what they achieved during this period. I mean, it's strange because it's it's not really a country that I have a great understanding of. Um, I'm not sure that many people do. Maybe this is why I um, get so much pleasure out of caricaturing people like the King of the Queen. But how would you size up Naples in general, Charles? Okay, Naples. Um, yes, of course, Naples is a very poor country. Um, it, it, it's it's um, a, a country of great estates um, based on our monoculture, um, grapes or uh, wheat or olives. Um basically an area of dry farming that means productivity is very low that means that you know tax revenues are not high and so on and so forth so so yes it's a very poor state um that said it's not quite the backwater um which is often painted uh, the neapolitan regime had actually been really at the forefront of the european enlightenment um certainly naples is one of the centers of the enlightenment and and the regime have been engaged in a constant struggle with the church and the state um in exactly the same way as you saw um, other monarchies uh, not not church and the state sorry the the church and the aristocracy in the, in the same way as you saw other monarchies across europe you know engaging in that same struggle um did the regime achieve very much? No, it didn't, because the obstacles in its way were enormous. Did it achieve enough seriously to annoy large sectors of the populace? Yes, it did. It sounds a little bit, Charles, like, uh, well, the picture you're painting is refining my understanding of Naples at the time, but it's not necessarily changing it particularly. Yeah, um, the, the, the problem with our understanding of Naples, such as it is, is that it tends to um, very much come from the pen of British soldiers and diplomats, uh, particularly Sir John Moore. Um, Sir John Moore was in Sicily in 1807, and, and he writes absolutely scathingly in his diary about about the, the the king and queen of naples and so forth and these comments are sort of regularly um uh, repeated um in 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 historiography no, i mean not least i suppose by me um but we do have to accept that there is a measure of stereotyping going on yeah this is interesting so interesting because it does seem like naples is it's rather in the eye of the beholder, really, with lots of different perspectives on it. And um, I, I think we should ask Alex about this, because I've spoken to Alex about this before, looking at Naples in the context of the Western Mediterranean in 1796, as Bonaparte forced his way through northern Italy. But, of course, in 1798, we've been looking east for a while now, and Naples in that context takes on a whole new significance, a strategic significance. Yes, and, and, and uh, I kind of want to um, echo what um, Charles was saying, because um, much of what kind of we think of Naples in kind of popular imagination has been sh um, shaded by the subsequent writings, um, both uh, fictional and, and historical, that portrayed Naples as this kind of retransigent, conservative, backward place. Think of uh, Lampedusa's Leopard or later on kind of the the issues of uh, resurgimento that in many respects overshadow the reality on the ground that actually existed at this 
um, uh, in the in the early you know late 18 early 19th century, uh, and this is particularly interesting um, kind of with in 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 regards to Naples' relation uh, place and role in in British political and literary culture um, because. I think there is a famous expression that Naples sir, was a, a quote debatable land uh, for for people like uh, Nelson or uh, Shelley and, and, and others um, because it posed this kind of unique um, challenge, um, a, a challenge um, of, of situating uh, at a strategically important location at the tip of the Italian peninsula, uh, crucial for the British um, naval interests, right, political strategic interests in, in, in Mediterranean, and yet be, uh, uh, Naples is also increasingly being threatened by the, uh, um, the increased power of France on, on the land. Uh, and so we will see, therefore, kind of Naples caught between the, the, ham or the hammer and the anvil, right? Uh, um, it, it needs to be, uh, navigate itself carefully between maintaining good relationship with the uh, uh, the British naval power while maintaining um, a neutrality, if not some sort of friendliness with uh, outward friendliness with the uh, French, who are clearly aggrandizing themselves in in the north and now a center of, of Italian Peninsula, and that is a very challenging task, as we will see soon enough. Uh, kind of treading uh, your path between these two superpowers. And ultimately, in many respects, um, the, the period of, um, uh, this period is underscores the, the difficulty of doing it. And because Naples will find itself constantly in this state of insecurity, uh, threatened either by the British or by the French. Okay, well, okay. That, there's our three um, uh, interview segments out of the way, and I can't believe that we've talked so little about Egypt and French ambitions there so far in this episode. So now is the time to uh, to rectify that and address that, and and first ask the question of where exactly have have the French got to by the end of March 1798? Um, how much is known of what's about to happen? How, what is the state of play? Um, well, one of the interesting things to me is how quickly uh, I think revolution in France's greater political aspirations transcended European boundaries, um, and how already by seventeen by early you know first months of seventeen ninety eight France are looking well beyond the confines of Europe. In fact, uh, it starts early on um, um, in in writing my own uh, in my own research. I've come across uh, fascinating memorandums that were submitted by French consul in Cairo, uh, a chap by the name of Charles Magalon. And Magalon already uh, uh, in 1795, he's uh, actively encouraging French government to look to the east, uh, well outside this kind of European boundaries. Um, and, and his memorandum is full of uh, references to the need for the uh, French colonial project. He talks, for example, in, in, in 1795 memorandum that uh, once we are masters of the Red Sea, we will control uh, the uh, key uh, trade routes, will um, drive the English out of India and effectively replace them in the, in the wider um, Indian Ocean. Um, and it is 
of writings like Magalons that will inundate uh, the French foreign ministry with this vision that if uh, you know that the France only needs to reach out and that places like Egypt are there for the picking, uh, and so that will influence the wider kind of geostrategic thinking in French circles and make them more um, willing and kind of more receptive to the suggestions of a military campaign that uh, young General Bonaparte will lay out in early 1798 to them. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it sometimes implied or even claimed that that, that that Bonaparte was the prime mover in, in the Egyptian affair. I mean, he wasn't. Um, the idea had been around for a long time, actually. I mean, yeah, you have this chap, Magalon, um, who's, who's banging on about it, actually, at the time. But you can trace the idea back um, before the revolution. I mean, the French, you know, had this idea that Egypt would be a wonderful place as a colony. They could grow cotton there. Um, it would allow them to 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 rival the British, um, and so on and so forth. So the idea is there. Um, next thing to say is is that France has achieved a, a moment of apparent stability. Directly, the directory is in control. Um, the, the the threat from the left has been seen off. The threat from the right has been seen off. Um, the Vendée is quiescent. Um, it, it's a moment when when things appear to be pretty stable on, on, on the domestic front. At the same time, they appear to be pretty stable on the international front. The, the, the only power that's still at war with, with, with France is, is Britain. And, and Britain, quite frankly, is, is pretty helpless without the support of continental powers. You know, Britain needs an alliance with preferably two out of the three, you know, Austria, Prussia and Russia. And it hasn't got an alliance of anybody. Um, yes, all right, it's got naval power, but you know, what can it actually do with its naval power? Um, and you know, the Royal Navy had been forced to evacuate or uh, abandon the Mediterranean. Um you know, Britain's naval power wasn't exactly on the up, shall we say. Um, so everything looks fine and dandy for some sort of dramatic adventure in the East. And there's you know, different pressures which lead to it. One of which perhaps is, is getting rid of Bonaparte from Paris and sending him off somewhere where he can't cause any trouble. But to be frank, the whole scenario is mad from start to finish. OK, the French can probably get to Egypt. And that's a probably. I mean, the Royal Navy is going to try and do something about it. Um, and point of fact, as we all know, it, go, it goes wrong and the French get there. OK, the French can get to Egypt. When they get to Egypt, they can certainly defeat the Mamluks and impose some sort of regime of their own. Fine. How are they going to hold out in Egypt in a situation in which Britain has incomparably greater naval power? Secondly, how are they going to overcome the Ottoman Empire? The Ottoman Empire is, 
in one sense, it's weak militarily. I mean, you know, you, you, you can you can knock out Ottoman armies relatively easily if you're in command of a European force. The trouble is there's an awful lot of the Ottoman Empire and it, it's kind of like a sponge it absorbed pressure. How are you going to overcome it? I think uh, to a certain degree, um, the French rationalized um, or kind of responses to all of the questions that um, Charles has posed, including the issue of what to do with the Ottoman Empire. The plan, of course, was to uh, launch not just a military offensive, but diplomatic offensive as well, and to convince the Ottomans that what the French were doing is actually in the Ottoman interest. I think one of the elements in the plan was for Talleyrand to actually reach out to the, if not to travel in person to, to Constantinople and negotiate with the um, the Ottoman government. Um, so uh, th there is an important element in the story, and that's uh, the one that Charles alluded to, and that is the France is victorious in 1797. And it has the luxury of, of this geopolitical preeminence that it can now wield. And Egypt is the, is, is the direct result of that. As Charles said, the political stability, domestic, relative political stability domestically and internationally allows France to mobilize an army for this adventure. Um, I'm, I think I'm not as critical in terms of this kind of, um, and I mean, in hindsight, we know that it's a folly, but uh, at the time, though, the French writing, whether the internal the internal discussions of the directory or the memorandum that Talleyrand produced, or even the writings of the merchants who are uh, urging the French government to in intervene, all point to uh, the French being um, um, convinced that Egypt was there uh, for the taking. Uh, and an appeal by the French merchants from Egypt, for example, spoke about um, humiliation uh, that the French, that the France is suffering in the East. And there is a wonderful quote that says, how long could we remain in Egypt in such a humiliating position? Should France, so accustomed to victories, submit to such a condition? Could she forget what is owed to national dignity? <laughs> um, which is a wonderful uh, a, a thing to say if you are a merchant in Egypt and the urging government for <laughs> for an uh, overseas adventure. <laughs> I I don't disagree with you, Alex. Um, yes, a lot of people in France genuinely thought that Egypt was the answer. They genuinely thought that Egypt could be turned into a colony. They genuinely thought that the Ottoman Empire would agree to this. They, they, they genuinely thought that somehow, by some magical means, which nobody has ever yet explained, um, somehow Egypt would, would allow them to, to start doing things to the British in India. The problem is that the whole thing from start to finish is wildly unrealistic. Um, the French could get to, to Egypt and they could establish themselves in Egypt, but how could they maintain themselves there in the face of British naval superiority? Okay, the, the British were temporarily absent from the Mediterranean, but that's not going to last. And, and whenever the British Navy fights the French, the, the Royal Navy wins. 
Except so that's Trump's issue number one. Issue number two is, and let's set aside the Ottoman Empire. Let's say we can keep the Ottoman Empire off off the French backs. How is the French occupation of Egypt going to affect British India? Um, there are no decent ports on the Red Sea. Yes, the French have a squadron of, of uh, frigates and so forth in in the um, in in the, in the Indian Ocean, but they help them. You know, Egypt's not going to give them any bases. And is anybody seriously? Does anybody seriously think that the French can march all the way to India? I mean, the whole thing is mad. And then, and then, we come back to, to the situation in Europe. What is the one thing which is going to to give Britain allies? The French march east. The Russians aren't going to like it and don't like it because they see um, the French incursion into the eastern Mediterranean as a threat to their interests. And the Austrians um, are not going to like it either. Net result is, is you've got this mad expedition which is going to go nowhere, which is going to precipitate a crisis in Europe. And, and that's why I think, and, and I do talk about this in my book, uh, Napoleon's Wars, you possibly have to see this in terms of, at least as far as Napoleon is concerned, you have to see it in, in, in terms of something uh, rather more nefarious than, than strategic planning and so forth. It's not certain, but the plan appears to have been for Napoleon to establish himself in Egypt, travel to Constantinople, where he'd do a deal with, with the Ottoman government, and then travel back to France you know, as the hero of the hour. Um, I don't think the idea was for him to stay in Egypt, but of course it all goes wrong and he stays in Egypt. And... Um, <laughs> And it all goes to pot, he says happily. <laughs> well, I know, I know you're desperate to come in, Alex. Um, there's something very attractive about the nefarious, the simple, straightforward, off you go, let's just send him over there. And Rebel was, um, I think, among the, the directors who were with Talleyrand on that. Alex, you were desperate to come in, I think, on a number of occasions in that. Let's, let's unleash you now. <laughs> well, let me, let me maybe uh, kind of... Uh, uh, discuss some of the issues Charles raised. And I think the biggest one is that the British naval supremacy is not as pronounced at this time. This is pre-Nile, pre-Trafalgar. This is the time when France feels that it is more than capable of confronting the British on the seas. So um, I think there is a, a, a pitfall of falling into the post-Trafalgar uh, view of the British naval supremacy. Um, certainly the fact that the, the French government was willing to send such a massive expedition to Egypt in light of the supposed British naval supremacy un uh, underscores the fact that they didn't consider it as such. Um, uh, the second, I think, issue is, of course, the one that Charles uh, rightly pointed out, 
And that is that the plan was not to go all the way to in India. Um, um, none of the writings that I've looked at, and, and that is memorandums from both the French interest in Egypt or memorandums by Talleyrand, the writings of Bonaparte, they are not talking about necessarily invading India as such. What they are talking always is two things. One is the, is the pronounced feeling that the Ottoman Empire is the sick man of Europe, that it is crumbling. In fact, uh, in a letter to the Directory in August of 1797, Bonaparte specifically refers to the Ottoman Empire as, uh, quote, crumbling every day. And this feeling that the Ottomans are in decline uh, sustained the, the vision of the opportunity that the Ottomans will not be will not be able to uh, uh, confront, resist the French aggrandizement in the East. And that the Ottomans are there for the taking, and if the French doesn't fill this vacuum, somebody else will do, and of course, uh, that somebody else will be either uh, British or, or the Russians. And the second uh, related issue is that once you accept this vision that the Ottoman Empire is in decline and is about to collapse, then you need, you know, you're willing to grab a piece of it. And for the French, that piece is, is clearly Egypt. And if we look at the memorandums, then they all talk about establishing in Egypt a colony. They always refer to, in fact, Talleyrand in his memorandum speaks about establishing a colony in Egypt that in his mind will soon replace the Antilles, those West Indies colonies that France has lost control of. Uh, and the same memorandum speaks about Egypt as a pathway into the Indian trade, that is, uh, 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 tapping the trade uh, in the Indian Ocean and increasingly dislodging the British interests. This is not about sending troops all the way to India, but rather posing in a, a threat uh, and, and forcing the British to, uh, to kind of readjust, to rebalance, which in many respects is exactly what happens. When we look at the British actions in late 1798 and especially 1999, and the correspondence between the uh, Dundons, Wellesley, and Grenville, we see exactly that fear that the French might th uh, directly threaten the British interests that forces the uh, realignment of the British interest in the wider Indian uh, Ocean. Again, I, d I don't disagree with much of what, with what Alex says. Yes, the, the, I mean, the, nobody was really seriously talking about marching all the way to India. Yes, the focus was, was first of all on building a colony where you could grow lots and lots of cotton and uh, probably sugar. Um, and, and, and secondly, um, somehow threatening Britain's trade with India. The Royal Navy had actually demonstrated its, its technical competence and its technical superiority. Anybody with half a brain is is going to say, can we really hold out in Egypt? That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say, and I come back to this point, it's all very well about talk, you know, talking about threatening Britain's trade with India, but how is this going to be achieved from Egypt? There aren't any naval bases that the French can use. The whole thing, I fear to say, is an example of how the French are living in cloud cuckoo land. 
you know, they are they are carried away by their own ambitions, by their own vainglory, by their own rhetoric. And I think this is a moment when the French leadership collectively, with the possible exception of Bonaparte, who's playing, who I suspect is playing a very dirty game, um, with the French leadership is just carried away. But uh, that's in hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing that it will be a fiasco. Um, but if you're in 1798 and you've just survived five atrocious years of war against what seemed to be combined forces of Europe and you came out on top, you have the resources of Belgium, Netherlands, um, Rhineland, Northern Italy, all under your control, and you have this brilliant young general. Wouldn't you be cocky? <laughs> As I, as, I, as I say, I can understand where it comes from. But I, I think it is really, you know, <laughs> castles in Spain stuff. It's, it, it, it's, it's fantasy stuff. It's, 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 it's a dream which they have convinced themselves that they can turn into reality. Well, I think Castles in Spain is for season nine, still to come. Um, but uh, it's really great hearing you both um, uh, chewing the fat over this this issue. And this is one of those occasions when, you know, uh, we can look forward to the next episode where things will have moved on. And there's a lot to talk about. Um, and I think a lot of these t debates and discussions will continue in into the next episode. Now, if you've any questions about anything you've heard in this or any other episode of the Napoleonic Quarterly, then do email us. It's napoleonicquarterly, all one word, at gmail.com. Uh, for now, though, all that remains is for me to say that at the end of this quarter, there are 6,287 days to go until Waterloo. Uh, thank you for their contributions uh, to Josh Proven, Frank Cogliano, Mary Robinson, Jonathan North, Charles Esther, and Alexander Mika Baridze. Ben Eckersley composed and performed all the music you've heard. Coming up in episode 26, we'll hear from Rachel Blackman-Rogers about Horatio Nelson's desperate pursuit of the French fleet at large and causing no amount of trouble in the Mediterranean. Bye for now. Nelson uh, concluded that the French couldn't have gone to the west because of the wind direction and that therefore they had probably gone to Egypt. He believed he was behind them when in fact he was actually in front of them and, and uh, there was literally a few miles between them.